Bible Biogs in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, one character at a time. Author, pastor and Bible teacher Mike Beaumont is in conversation with David Taverner. In this episode, we're focusing on Judas Iscariot. Uh, surely the disciple that's gone down in history, Mike, is the disciple who betrayed Jesus. Yeah, this is not a happy part of the story, isn't it? But it's clear that it was a part of the story that didn't happen outside of what Jesus both understood uh, and even had his hand upon because we we first meet uh, Judas Iscariot. By the way, Iscariot, what does that mean? It, it probably simply means where he came from, Judas, the man from Kerioth, Judas Iscariot, though some people think it could mean Judas the Sicarii. The Sicarii were the dagger men. They were, were like revolutionaries, but most scholars don't think that. So it's probably... Judas, the man from Kerioth, a town somewhere in Judah, we've no idea where it was. And we first come across Judas Iscariot um, with Jesus firmly having chosen him. In Mark chapter 3, we read that Jesus has been preaching for some time and, and, and doing some miracles and people have begun to follow him and some of them he's called. Um, but the point comes when Mark 3 tells us he went up a mountain and called out the ones he wanted to go with him, and they came to him, and he appointed 12 of them and called them his apostles. Now, why 12? We've seen in a previous episode, 12, because it was the equivalent of the 12 patriarchs of the 12 tribes of Israel. And here is Jesus, as it were, refounding Israel again, and Israel of both Jew and Gentile who would believe in him. And it says that they were to accompany him. He would send them out to preach and give them authority to cast out demons. So he calls them and that's what he's called them to do. And, and then Mark says, and these are the 12 that he chose. Simon, whom he named Peter, James and John, the brothers, the sons of Zebedee, but Jesus nicknamed them sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who later betrayed him. What a sad note at that point. But it's important to know that Jesus chose him. Why? Well, do you know what? We're never told. Ultimately, we're not given psychological insights, though in the mystery of God, the Gospels do seem to suggest that he was chosen because God knew he was going to be the one who would betray him and hand him over. And there comes something of the mystery of God's providence and human choice and free will and how those two fit together. I don't think any of us know. But I think what stands out is that this was not outside of God's knowledge. God knew what was going to happen. And yet, you know, I think all the way through, it is the story we get, the picture we get is not really of, oh, okay, I'll choose you, Judas. I know you're going to be the one who will betray me, but I've got to do it because, yeah, you're, you're an important part of the story. Not at all. It does look 
like Jesus gave him genuine chance to change like all these others did. And I think it brings home for us, you know, that becoming a Christian, becoming a follower of Jesus is not just a matter of putting our hand up and saying yes in a meeting or saying, yes, Jesus, I'll follow you. But it is a process. It is a whole lifetime of making choice after choice after choice to follow Jesus. And where are some of the other apostles that we've looked at? And we've seen how they changed, how people like John, for example, changed from that son of thunder, thunder boy we looked at mm. in the previous episode, mm. to be that gentle guy who understood the importance of love. Judas didn't seem to take the opportunity to change. Now, why do I say that? Well, as we read in the Gospels, we, we find that Judas seemed to have a problem with money. I remember in a previous episode, in fact, the one around Martha and Mary, there was a reference to Judas actually being a thief. That's right. And it says that he was really angry that Martha had poured all this ointment. Remember, it was like a year's worth of wages that she poured in ointment over his feet and then wiped his feet with her hair. And Judas was livid. And the reason he says is, what a waste. We could have given all this to the poor. But John in his gospel adds, he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and he was the keeper of the money bag and he used to help himself to it. Now, isn't this fascinating? Here is a man who clearly has a problem with money. And as we move on in the story, we'll see why did he betray Jesus essentially for money. And yet what does Jesus do with him? he appoints him the treasurer of their little group. Now, let's not think of big account books and <laughs> bank accounts. He was simply the guy who kept the, the money back. Because as they travelled around with Jesus, they needed some financial resources. Absolutely, and they would have to buy food and things at times. So they, they needed someone to carry the common purse for them. And the person that Jesus chooses is Judas. He's the person who has the problem with money that Jesus entrusts the keeping of the money to. Now, it would be easy to think, well, for goodness sake, didn't Jesus know he had a problem with money? And, you know, could he not have chosen someone better? Oh, yeah, of course he could. But I think what's happening here is Jesus, in the knowledge that God gave him, knew well what Judas was like. He knew he had a weakness for money. But it's like he gives him an opportunity to change. Judas, I know you have problems with money, but I'm going to trust you with the money. And here's a chance, Judas, for you to change, for you to change how you view money, to become an honest person, to undergo that process. So it's not just a case of Jesus picks Judas because he knew he was going to betray him. Jesus picks Judas because he wants to give him a chance to change genuinely. And yet this guy doesn't, and so in not changing, ultimately will fulfill the prophecies about someone who would betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And with you referencing John, one of the other disciples, talking about his fellow disciple, Judas, obviously Judas had this reputation for stealing from the money bag, and therefore he could have been thrown out of that band of followers by Jesus. Fascinating, isn't it? 
But I think a wonderful picture there into how, you know, Jesus does not expect us to become perfect overnight when we become his follower, but he he gives us opportunities again and again and again. But the whole process of discipleship is a process that's meant to help us change. You know, and, and that's why it's so great uh, where Christians have the opportunities to have a, a mentor or a group leader in some way where there's honest accountability and challenging of one another and and someone to whom you give the right to say, please ask me about this area. It's an area of weakness. And I want you to ask me because I, I, I want to break through here. And yeah, you're right. It looks like everybody knew what he used to do. You know, probably at first they thought, oh, we must have lost the money on the way. But eventually the penny seems to drop and still Jesus doesn't take the responsibility from him. Still he gives him opportunity to change, just as still today, Jesus constantly gives us opportunity to change. But, you know, when we don't take that opportunity, Judas is a real warning of what can happen is if we still carry on in the same old way and don't bring our weaknesses to Jesus and don't get help from him and others whom we need to bring about that change that he longs for from us. And Judas missed out on that. Now, you mentioned the 30 pieces of silver Let's just look at that story. What actually happened? What was the betrayal all about? Well, by the time we get to the end of the gospel, for example, in in Mark 14, uh, verse 10, we, we read just these few verses. Judas Iscariot, one of the 12 disciples, went to the leading priest to arrange to betray Jesus to them. And they were delighted when they heard why he'd come. And they promised to give him money. So he began looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus. So he has now gone to the opposing side. He's gone to the chief priests who are so opposed to Jesus, who've constantly looked for opportunities throughout the Gospels to stop this man, whom they saw as undermining their faith, undermining the importance of the temple in particular for which they had responsibility. And now this must have seemed like a gift on a plate, mustn't it? As Judas goes to them, one of the 12, and says, you know, if you give me money, I'll hand him over to you. And we read elsewhere in the Gospels that he agreed a price of 30 pieces of silver, 30 silver coins. Not a huge sum, actually, uh, about the price of a slave in in those days. So, you know, you sort of thought you didn't get a good deal out of that, Judas, really. But it's interesting, the 30 pieces of silver is exactly the amount that Jeremiah, in a prophecy hundreds of years earlier, had prophesied that Messiah would be handed over for 30 pieces of silver. And that's exactly what Judas did. He betrays Jesus for money. He could have taken the money out of the money bag, couldn't he? It's weird, isn't it? Because you think, okay, maybe they never had as much as 30 pieces of silver. You know, I mean, these these were not rich guys and a rich team uh, moving around. But why is it that he did this? You know, and scholars over the years have tried to produce something of a psychological analysis. What was it that was going on in Judas that caused him 
to do this? Why betray Jesus and why betray him for, frankly, what was not a huge amount of money, just these 30 pieces of silver? And the short answer is the New Testament never tells us. The only psychological motive the New Testament ever gives for Judas's betrayal is that he did it for money, is that, you know, he had this profound thing inside himself that money was so important. I think, listen, probably all of us have seen it in ourselves at times, how how powerful the, the desire to have that bit more can be, and we've probably hated it in ourselves. And, you know, we can all look in society today and see people who just want more and more and more. And Jesus once said, you know, that we should beware of the power of the love of money. Jesus never said beware of money. He said beware of the power of the love of money. And it it looks like Judas had just never settled that issue of his love of money. Now, the, the perhaps underlying psychological motive that that isn't in the text, but which many scholars think may have been the trigger, is that we know that Jesus was not the sort of Messiah that any of the 12 disciples wanted him to be. We saw in a previous episode how Peter had acknowledged Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God in Matthew 16. And Jesus said, well done, Simon Peter. You didn't get this yourself. This was revealed to you by my father in heaven. And and Peter's so full that he's got it. He's grasped that Jesus is Messiah. And straight after that, Jesus goes on to explain that he was going to have to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the religious leaders and be crucified, put to death, but he would rise again on the third day. And Peter's the first one to jump in and say, no, Lord, this will never happen to you. Why? Because in Jewish thinking, the Messiah was a conquering warrior hero. He would get a sword and a horse and an army, and he would clear these Romans out of the land, and the kingdom of God would come. And Jesus has to readjust their thinking that The sort of Messiah he is, is not a Messiah with a sword, but a Messiah with a cross. Now, the disciples would eventually grasp that, but it looks perhaps like Judas didn't. And so some scholars wonder whether in betraying Jesus, had he betrayed Jesus not just for the money, but because he was hoping in some way to provoke Jesus to action so that when he will eventually lead the soldiers of the priest to Jesus, who is there praying in Gethsemane, oh, the irony of this, you know, he's praying Mm. in Gethsemane, this intimate moment with his father. And while he's doing this, Judas is leading the soldiers from the city down the Kidron Valley up the other side. And it was night and Their flaming torches would have easily been seen, and yet Jesus sits there in the Garden of Gethsemane overlooking the city, waiting for Judas to come. And was it perhaps that Judas at that point was really hoping, come on, Jesus, this is it. This is your last chance to turn and be the sword of Messiah that I want you to be. Well, that may well be, but the truth is the New Testament gives us no such 
suggestion. And it does suggest that at the end of the day, that there was this deep fault line that ran through Judas that was this love of money. And I think that's a challenge for us today. You know, if in our character we recognize there's like a deep fault line, this issue that keeps coming back, for goodness sake, get it dealt with, share it with another Christian, share it with your pastor, get this prayed about, get it brought out into the light. Because fault lines, if they are not exposed, ultimately end up cracking just as they do in the earth. And and Judas clearly never dealt with this fault line within him of the love of money. Now, yeah, maybe there was the other thing about wanting to push Jesus's hand or whatever, but he never dealt with this love of money and it came back to bite him. I noticed when you read the actual Bible text, it said he looked for an opportunity to betray Jesus. So this was premeditated. This wasn't just a spur of the moment. Yeah, that's a good insight uh, there, David. He was definitely looking for opportunity. It wasn't a spur of the moment thing. This was thought through. This was premeditated. He was clearly looking for the opportunity. And then, you know, when when Jesus goes to Gethsemane, Gethsemane was a place he used to love to go to, an olive grove. It was really quiet away from the bustle of the city and yet so close to it, just the other side of this very small Kidron Valley. And it's it's like he says, this is it. This is the moment. And and so we can read on in in, in Mark 14 that Um, as Jesus is there praying to his father, aware of what's about to come the next day, calling out to God, God, if it's possible, if there's any other way, Lord, now would be a good time to come up with the plan. And and while he's praying, uh, Judas arrives with the, the crowd and the soldiers with their swords and their clubs that the priests and the Pharisees and the teachers have sent and we read this, the traitor Judas had given them a prearranged sign. You'll know which one to arrest when I greet him with a kiss. Can you believe that? The intimate mark of friendship, a kiss, would be twisted to become the sign of betrayal. And he said, you can take him away under guard. And as soon as they arrived, Jesus walked up to As soon as they arrived, Judas walked up to Jesus. Rabbi, he exclaimed and gave him a kiss. And they grab Jesus and they they take him away. And in one of the Gospels, it says, Judas, would you betray me with a kiss? Jesus exposing there the, the stupidity, the folly of using a kiss as a sign of betrayal, and he hands him over, and his work is done. In your life as a pastor, in church life over the years, talking to married couples probably, this damage that can be caused by betrayal is something that I'm sure has come up time and time again. And I'm just reflecting on the premeditated aspect of betrayal in human relationships. Yes, I I think when there is betrayal that happens under the pressure of a moment, it's so much easier for people to forgive. I think particularly I've seen that in marital relationships where there's been a stupid momentary lapse 
while it's painful to the one who's been cheated on, it is easier for them to to work with that and to rebuild the marriage. But when it is premeditated, when this has been carefully planned and schemed, it must be so undermining of you as a person to think, what is it about me that you so now hate that you would consciously work against me? Uh, and betrayal is a it's a powerful tool. I mean, it only takes a moment to do it, but the damage it does to the one who is betrayed, you know, maybe we should even say if, if even anyone listening to our episode today is in that sort of situation where they're on the edge of betraying a loved one or a partner, for God's sake, pull back quickly and go and get hope the minute this episode ends. Go and get hope because it will only get worse. It will never get better. I believe in Luke's gospel, there's a reference to this betrayal of Judas kind of pointing to Satan entering him. Yes, just before the incident that we've been talking about, that that arrest in Gethsemane, Jesus had shared the Last Supper with his disciples. And in Luke 22, this story comes that as the Passover festival was approaching, the leading priests and teachers of the law were plotting how to kill Jesus, but were afraid of the people's reaction. And we read this, it says, Then Satan entered into Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, and he went to the leading priests and captains of the temple card to discuss the best way to betray him. And they were delighted and promised to give him money, so he agreed and began looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus when they could arrest him, when the crowds weren't around, it said. So again, this this premeditated aspect that we are looking at that led to that incident in Gethsemane we've just talked about. But yeah, that interesting phrase there, then Satan entered into Judas. Um, and we're left with that. So so who did this? You know, was it was it Judas who did it or was it Satan who did it? And I think the answer is both. Because the Bible tells us, you know, the more we open ourselves up to what is good, the more we become good. The more we open up ourselves to God, the more we get of God and act like God. And the opposite is equally true. The more we open ourselves up to evil, to wickedness, to Satan, the more that becomes part of us. Now, we know, don't we, that Judas had been a thief throughout these past three years. He'd been dipping his hand into the money bag, and it's almost as if every time he dipped his hand into the money bag, he made a choice to open himself up a little bit more to evil. And the trouble is, you know, when you do wrong, when you open yourself to evil, when you've done it once, it's easier to do it a second time. First time, you feel really bad. Anyone who's ever had an experience of this, you've done something you know you shouldn't, how do you feel? Incredibly bad. But then you do it again. How do you feel the second time? Well, bad, but not quite as bad as last time. And you do it a third time and you're not quite as bad again until eventually you are doing things that once would have profoundly troubled you and no longer trouble you. Let me say to our listeners today. If you are doing things today that did not trouble you three months, six months, a year, five years ago, warning bells should be ringing. 
because that's what Judas did. He opened himself up increasingly by his choice to manipulate and scheme and steal. And each time he did, he opened himself up more and more to the influence of Satan until we get to this point where Luke puts it starkly, Satan entered him. It's like he had opened the door increasingly wide until Satan said, thank you very much. I'll walk through that. And he did. And what were the ramifications for Judas? Well, he didn't do well out of it at all because having betrayed Jesus, he is then appalled at what he's done. It's like he suddenly realizes the horror of what he has done in that moment. And so we we read in the Gospels that he wants to wash his hands of the whole thing, get clean somehow. So he goes back to the high priests and he, he wants to give them their money back. And they say, you know, we don't want it. And he tosses it at their feet. And, and he goes out and he commits suicide. He hangs himself. He is so now full of remorse and he knows that there is no way back. We get an interesting little glimpse into what followed, actually in Acts, not in the Gospels itself, but in Acts 1, 16 and 19, uh, we're told there that um, they bought a, well, it says literally Judas bought a field with the money. Well, actually, he didn't. Well, he did, but indirectly. He'd thrown it back at the priests in Matthew 27, verse 3, but then they'd seen that as blood money. It couldn't be used. It's funny, isn't it, how religious people can suddenly all go, oh, no, 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 we can't possibly use that money. Uh, It's soiled, although they had given the money Mm. to get Jesus. And so they use that money instead uh, to buy the potter's field as a, a burial place for foreigners, and it got the nickname the Field of Blood. So the money that he had been given for betraying Jesus that he throws back and they say, oh, no, no, we can't touch this. They end up buying as a burial place. And there Judas hangs himself and it tells us that his his body burst open. It looks like there are two conflicting accounts, actually, but when you put them together, I I don't think that is so at all. It says his, his body burst open. Now, the most likely thing is that his body hung there, having hung himself, committed suicide for a few days. And in the heat Mm. that we have in the Middle East, his body has started to badly decompose. If you remember the story of Lazarus, Mm. uh, Martha and Mary had said, Lord, you know, he's been dead for four days. His body will be badly decomposed. There'll be a bad smell even within four days. Mm. So it looks like his body had decomposed and then maybe as they cut him down, his body had burst open, his innards spilled over the field. So I think we can reconcile the two. But what a tragic end for a man who was given such incredible opportunities. Judas was given the same opportunity that Peter was and Matthew was and John was. And yet, because he never dealt with this fault line within his character, lived with it hidden, 
maybe live with it thinking, I can cope with it. I can rule this. I've got it under control. A bit like the alcoholic who is convinced he's got his drinking under control, but deep down. And because Judas hid this and repressed this, rather than brought it to Jesus and had his weaknesses dealt with, like John the Thunderboy did and had his attitude changed, like Peter did, who was all mouth and action and had to learn to be a little bit more thoughtful and sensitive. He he hides it, he covers up, and ultimately this fault line in him snaps and leads to his own personal destruction and leads to the death of Jesus. Would it be easy to sort of distance ourselves from Judas and think, well, we're not like him? Yes, I think it'd be really easy. And I think particularly because over church history, Judas has been characterized as that nasty man who betrayed Jesus. And David, you and I wouldn't betray Jesus, would we? And yet there is so much of Judas in each one of us. Again, I would just want to come back to that picture of the fault line, where we know there is a character issue within us or a behavior issue within us that is deep and has not been unearthed, and we have not brought to Jesus, and we have not seen it changed. You know, if if we don't deal with those fault lines, they're going to have a, such a way of coming back and getting us. And as a pastor, I've seen that in many people's lives over many years. Do you know there is nothing, no failure, no sin, no problem that we can't bring to Jesus, that he can't deal with and start to change. The only thing he can't change is that which we don't bring to him. And so I think the lesson out of Judas today would be, you know, if you recognize there's an issue in your life, a fault line that's running through your life and you've just never got on top of it, for goodness sake, go and talk to an older Christian, a mature Christian, go and talk to a pastor. Yes, it might seem so hard to say this is what I'm like, But doing it could be the very thing that saves your life and that makes you a fruitful disciple rather than a fruitless disciple. David Tavener was in conversation with Mike Beaumont, who's written about the people of the Bible throughout the Christian Basics Bible. Catch their conversations anytime on the UCB player or with your favourite podcast provider. Just search for Bible Biogs in 30 minutes.